Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. April 17th will be the anniversary of the 2015 death of Francis Cardinal George, uh, OMI, former Archbishop of Chicago. He was a man of great intellect. He was a man of great courage, a great leader uh, of the church. Most of all, he was a disciple of our Lord Jesus. My guest, Michael Heinlein, is the author of Glorifying Christ, The Life of Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI. Michael is uh, the editor of our Sunday visitors, simplycatholic.com. He's also written The Handy Little Guide to Spiritual Communion and Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood. You can follow him on Twitter at Heinlein Michael, H-E-I-N-L-E-I-N, Michael. Michael, good to have you here. Thanks. Great pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, OMI stands for what? Oblates of Mary Immaculate. That was the religious congregation that Cardinal George uh, committed his life to when uh, his home diocese told him he couldn't be a priest there. Let's and let's go. Let's go to that. Why couldn't he be a priest? When Cardinal George was thirteen, he contracted polio and spent several months in the hospital. He had uh, his eyes set on becoming a uh, priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago, where he was born and grew up. However, um, when he applied for the high school seminary there uh, in his eight, the end of his eighth grade year, he was told that uh, he could attend the high school seminary, but they wanted him to know up front that they would never ordain him because of the disability that resulted from polio. What was the disability? His right leg was um, severely compromised from the uh, virus, and uh, so at that time he was on crutches, Mm -hmm. and uh, he also had some paralysis in addition to the right leg and his right hand as well. And uh, so it wasn't sure, you know, at the clear picture at the time of, of how the rest of his life might unfold, but um, there was no question that, uh, you know, his his mind was certainly fully aware. Sure. And uh, he was, uh, you know, regarded as brilliant back then. His eighth grade year, he missed almost four months of school, but he graduated at the top of his class. <laughs> uh, were there canonical reasons that they didn't want to ordain um, somebody with a disability as a result of polio? None that I'm aware of, um, which is also what made it possible for him to uh, become a priest with the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. Um, When he had applied with the OMIs um, at the end of his eighth grade year and uh, was visited by their vocations director, uh, they told him he could be an Oblate if he could walk across the room. (laughs) And his sister recalled that with a lot of Joy in her voice, but a lot of tears in her eyes. Wow. he uh, That's a very young age to be uh, given that kind of rejection and that kind of challenge. Uh, did um, he must, did he have, it sounds like he had a firm sense of calling fairly early on in his life. Is that true? Yes. Yes, I would say that's true. Um he was he was always very much involved in his parish, which was just a couple blocks away from his family home in the northwest side of Chicago. 
and uh, he really looked up to the longtime pastor there. It was uh, one of the head altar boys at the parish, and he said that on the day of his first communion um, in 1945, that's when he knew that God was calling him to become a priest. He was uh, eight years old at the time, and he he had his eyes set on that. Um, everybody knew that little Franny, <laughs> who played Mass at home and almost burned the house down with candles <laughs> until his mother forbade it, uh, was destined to be a priest. <laughs> it's, so he had, he had, sounds like he had a lot of support from his parents. Yes, he certainly did. Uh, definitely his mother uh, and his sister Margaret. His father uh, was never all that impressed by priests, apparently, and wow. he didn't know what to make of this. And But he told his son, um, if you're going to be a priest, be a good one. And uh, I think we could all agree that, that he lived up to that yes. from his father. He wanted to be a diocesan priest. He was told no. How long before he then saw the uh, oblates of uh, uh, Mary as a an option? Well, uh, when things were not looking good at the end of his eighth grade year in terms of admission to Quigley for preparation to the priesthood, that was the high school seminary in Chicago, uh, there was a classmate of his, um, who had an uncle that was a priest with the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. And this classmate was going to uh, head to the OMI's uh, junior seminary in Belleville, Illinois. And so uh, his friend told him, you know, well, here's what I'm going to do. Maybe you should try this. Mm-hmm. And that's um, with, within a couple of weeks, the, the Oblate sent down from St. Paul, Minnesota there, um, vocations director, and uh, that's when he came and visited the George's home and told uh, Franny that if he walked across the room, he could become a priest with the Oblates. And so um, by the end of that summer, this was 1951, um, he was able to move to Belleville, Illinois, which was no small thing for a boy on crutches to move some five hours away from home mm-hmm. it took uh, took the train down and um you know gave up all the comforts of life uh, and everything that yeah. he knew in order to pursue this call um and so it really was a, a real sign of his perseverance even from that young age now uh these are the missionary oblates of mary immaculate what's the missionary mean their call is to proclaim the gospel to the poor. And so um, the OMIs have brought the gospel to the farthest flung regions of the world. Uh, oftentimes we're the first to proclaim the gospel in many of the places where they were missioned. They were um, founded by St. Eugene de Mazenod, who was a bishop in the south of France after the French Revolution. And uh, he knew his own home place needed to be evangelized in the wake aftermath of that horrible time. And um, they were so successful at it, they started getting requests from all around the world, from bishops, to send uh, their priests. Well, and um, yeah. they uh, they really evangelized most most of 
uh, Western Canada um, in the uh, late 1800s. So he would have been aware of this then. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm just trying to imagine a 13, 14, 15 year old boy joining a missionary order committed to work among the poor. That's a pretty. That's not just quote becoming a priest. That's choosing a type of lifestyle, which is probably going to determine that you're not going to be experiencing many of the uh, comforts uh, enjoyed by often diocesan priests. Was he aware that he was uh, going to be taking his encampment among the poor? Yes, very much. I mean, his formation uh, with the Oblates made him aware of this. He he would uh, sit and listen to missionaries from all around the world who would make their way at one time or another to his seminary in Belleville. And, uh, you know, he knew very much the stories uh, of the missions and, and the sorts of things that could be in store for him. Um, it's kind of ironic, I guess, because um, Quigley, the high school seminary in Chicago, told him that they didn't think he could handle the uh, bus transfers uh, getting downtown from his family home or they didn't think he could handle the stairs, getting up and down a couple flights of stairs. Wow. But then um, he he signs up for this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, later on, uh, through his ministry as, as number two or vicar general with the congregation, he he visited dozens of countries, traveled all over the world, never stayed in a hotel for 12 years, slept on the floor <laughs> wow. many times. So... Um, Wow. He really threw himself into that missionary life. He was, uh, you mentioned that he was a brilliant young student. When is it determined that he should go on for advanced um, theological training? And he also goes on to get uh, a doctorate, I guess, uh, at Tulane. So tell me, how does that fit in with his missionary calling? Well, Cardinal George stood out intellectually in the seminary, um, and it was thought that maybe uh, they should send him to Rome to finish his seminary training in theology. Mm-hmm. But uh, those in charge of, of the assignments at that time thought it would be too hard for him because of his disability to navigate the cobblestone streets in Rome to, from the Oblate General House to the universities, and so on. So um, they decided that they would send him to Ottawa, Canada, where the Oblates ran a school of theology at the University of Ottawa. And um, he finished his theology up there. But his his intellectual qualities uh, were seen not only by his classmates, but also his professors. I talked to a few of them who are still with us, and they they always thought that Franny was smarter than they were, Hmm. and they felt like he could really offer something to the congregation with those gifts by way of teaching and preparing young men for uh, the future as priests and missionaries. And so uh, it was kind of decided uh, that he should pursue an academic uh, path, and and he, he was 
for several years in his early years as a priest, a philosophy professor. He, as you mentioned, had a doctorate from Tulane University in American philosophy, and um, then he was uh, with the Oblate Seminary, not too far from New Orleans, in past Christian Mississippi, mm-hmm. for several years, where he taught Oblate scholastics. And um, and then they closed that, and he eventually ended up at Creighton University, where they opened up another house of formation, and uh, was chair of the philosophy department there. I, I remember reading in your book that uh, Tulane University was not too excited at bringing uh, a priest into the philosophy department. <laughs> No, this was the late 1960s, and as he characterized the philosophy department there at the time was agnostic at best, uh, mostly atheist. Hmm. And um, he, at first, was told he couldn't be a student there because he was a priest, so they told him, (laughs) don't wear the collar when you're around here. But he, he talked about how he argued with them and talked and talked and talked until they had nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, hold it there. We'll take a break. Come back on the other side. Looking at the life of Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI. The book is called Glorifying Christ. And uh, Michael Heinlein, its author, will be with us when we come back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Michael Heinlein, biography, biographer of uh, Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI. The book is called Glorifying Christ, and we're at uh, where he's getting his uh, graduate degree in, in uh, philosophy, receiving a doctorate. Uh, and did he expect, uh, Michael, did he expect to be a university professor, or did he expect to work within, you know, seminaries? How, how was he planning on using his philosophy? Yeah, I think the expectation was, and his understanding of it, was that uh, he was going to be involved with oblate formation. Yeah, okay. Um, and so uh, he would be teaching philosophy to seminarians, which he did the whole time he was a professor, but while he was at Creighton, he also taught other undergraduates, too. Um, but that was only for a couple of years, and uh, I don't know if he had many thoughts beyond what might have happened there. I think he would have loved being in the academic world no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think somewhere in the book you mentioned that he realized that we needed uh uh, s- serious Catholic uh, professors out there. And um, he, he sure certainly would have been an asset uh, for the church in that environment. Uh, where did he travel with the missionary oblates? Where did he go? Well, he was elected um, vicar general for the congregation um, in 1974. And that brought him to, uh, at least once, the oblate missions throughout the world. He oversaw, as number two in the congregation, some 6,000 members at the time. So he was all over Europe, he he was all over Southeast Asia, all over Africa, uh, all over the United States and Canada. Mm. Um, There are many stories about uh, some of the things that happened to him, getting detained at 
borders or getting deported out of other countries and getting bombed at, getting shot at, uh, all sorts of things that happened to him traveling the globe those 12 years uh, that he was vicar general. What was he doing during the uh, the years of uh, the Second Vatican Council? Well, he was ordained a priest in 1963, so he was ordained right in the middle of the council. Yep. And um, so his first years as a priest were some kind of turbulent times, right? And um, he he definitely, you know, as as a leader in his congregation, but then later as a bishop, was very interested in helping to ensure the Church could authentically uh, inherit the teachings of the Council mm-hmm. in a very fruitful way. Did the Order go through a uh, great decline in, in numbers? Yeah, they, they had, a, they had a, a decline in numbers. They had priests and, and so on leave after the Council. Um, in fact, uh, the reason he was elected vicar general was because they had to hold a special chapter because their superior general at the time had left after only two years uh, ended up marrying a religious woman okay this is uh, hanley and, yes yeah. yes father okay. richard hanley and uh so it was, it was thought at the time they wouldn't elect an american to anything else some oblates told me but uh <laughs> well francis george uh was standing out among the rest. They they had considered him to be the next superior general, actually, but he talked them out of it and said, I'm too young. He was only in his mid-30s at the time. Oh, okay. And uh, anyway, he, he became vicar general and worked very well with the superior general that they had elected, who was his spiritual director in the seminary, actually. Hmm. What, how did he, do we know how he thought about these uh, changes uh you know why people were becoming polarized over the after the Second Vatican Council. Why others were simply leaving? How did he understand what was going on there? Well, I think that Cardinal George himself experienced, but also you know saw up close with even people who were classmates of his and so on that that the Second Vatican Council had had been a bit disorienting, you know, to to the people of his generation. And so I think that he was able to navigate that in such a way that he kept his eyes on the truth. And, you know, he actually uh, uh, wanted to see the Church blossom in such a way that uh, the Council envisioned. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that that those those years were an opportunity for him to... uh, steer the church away from uh, the polarization, that the, the, the sense of confusion that, that some experienced. He, he, was, he was able to be a stabilizing force. Yeah, I, mean, I would imagine so. Uh, he, he seems to have ha- had kept a clear, a clear head about it all. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. When does he become a bishop? After he finished up his uh, 12 years as vicar general in 1986, he ended up for a few years in Boston, where he was uh, working with a think tank of sorts. And um, and then in 1990, he was named a bishop and sent to Yakima, Washington, in central Washington State, the Pacific Northwest. 
Is it unusual for missionary priests to become the ordinary of a diocese? It's not very common, uh, in, in, especially in America. He had commented throughout his life that when he became a religious uh, back in the 50s, he knew that that meant <laughs> any aspirations of ecclesiastical advancement were next to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was never anything that he was angling for. Oh, gosh. Um, what was his experience like in uh, Yakima? At first, he tried to talk uh, the apostolic nuncio out of the appointment because okay. he said, I don't know where this place is on a map. <laughs> but uh, he fell in love with the place immediately. Um, he he was a, a unifying figure there because even at that time, we're talking the early 90s, they were a majority Spanish-speaking. And um, so there was a certain amount of discord between the Anglo and Hispanic communities. Right particularly uh, over the rights of workers and so on, because many of them were migrant workers mm -hmm. in the Hispanic community. And so he was able to strike a real um, balance uh, between the two groups and bring them together as the Church ought, um, because both sides trusted him, both sides respected him, and they, they both came to him asking him to kind of be an intermediary between the difficulties. Yeah. Now, did he go from there to the Archdiocese of Chicago? No, there was a little gap there. Um, he was in the Archdiocese of Portland as Ninth Archbishop there for 10 months <laughs> before wow. he got the call to go to Chicago. Wow. Was, uh, was that a big surprise? Going to Chicago yeah. certainly was. Yeah, yeah. he... he um, he again tried to talk the apostolic nuncio out of the appointment by saying it wasn't fair to the people of Portland. He right. said, I've picked out my grave here already. <laughs> I, I need to stay put for a while. And uh, the uh, Cardinal Bernadine in Chicago had died uh, prematurely, of course, from cancer. I remember. So yeah. uh, that necessitated uh, an appointment of a successor and... Um, well, history uh, recalls it all, but uh, Cardinal George was seen as the man that was needed for that place and at that time. Did he, what did he, let's see, I know he didn't take an attitude of being a, going in there with a, a corporate agenda, or that he was uh, the ecclesial equivalent of CEO, um, but he certainly has some idea of what he needs to accomplish as uh, bishop of the Archdiocese of Chicago. How did he see his mission there? Well, when he uh, arrived for his installation, he met with the priests of the Archdiocese the night before he was installed. And... Uh, his predecessor, Cardinal Bernadine, introduced himself to the presbyterate as Joseph, your brother. Mm -hmm. And he said to the priests, I'm Francis, your bishop. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I think the intention was he was going to govern, which which Bernadine had trouble doing. He himself, uh, George, found having trouble himself to do that. Yeah. But uh, I think that that was his intention, was to teach, sanctify, and govern. And... Um, 
I, I think he found out rather quickly that that was going to be sort of hard to do in a place yeah. like Chicago. Was there widespread discontent among Chicago priests? Yeah, there was a rather sizable group when he came in who uh, complained to the Apostolic Nuncio about his appointment, and um, they had kind of uh, derogatorily nicknamed him Francis the Corrector, <laughs> because uh, when he would come into churches and see the aberrant liturgical practices and so on, he would say something about it, <laughs> sometimes on the spot. Wow. And, um, you know, he, he just—he always wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, the Church was, was living according to the mind of the Church, and sometimes that wasn't happening in the, in the parishes he would visit or so on. But And he also took an interest in making sure that— uh, you know, catechetical texts were were up to snuff and and, and proper, and uh, those sorts of things early on landed him in a little bit of uh, trouble with the priests. And uh, you know, I think in the end, it was it was uh, an episode that he learned from, but uh, I think it was regrettable in how it unfolded. Mm-hmm. Uh- Bernadine had a reputation of being a, quote, progressive. Um, do those categories make any sense in the career of Cardinal George? No, and uh, he would be the first to tell us that. He was asked that question by Chicago's media when he was appointed in 1997 to be the 8th Archbishop there. Uh, because of Bernadine's legacy, they said, you know, Bernadine was a liberal, he was progressive. What are you? Yeah, I'm right. <laughs> he said, well, he said the Catholic faith isn't liberal or conservative. It's true. The Catholic yeah. faith is true, and I intend to teach the faith. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pick it up from there. That's a good place to take a break. We'll come back with Michael Heinlein. He's the biographer of uh, Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI, Glorifying Christ, the name of the volume. And, of course, it'll be available in the online bookstore for you. I'm Al Cresta. Stay with us. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me. Michael Heinlein, he is the biographer of Francis uh, Cardinal George, OMI. The book is called Glorifying Christ, and we're at the place where he has now been appointed the ordinary of the Archdiocese of Chicago. And uh, going over some of the challenges that he faced there, uh, I, I think the contrast of Cardinal, or, yeah, what was Cardinal Bernadine? introducing himself to the priests of Chicago by saying, I am Joseph, your brother, and uh, uh, Cardinal George saying, uh, you know, I am Francis, your bishop, uh, is a very interesting contrast. Did he have, did he identify a cluster of priests that were actively challenging him? Or was this more elusive? Well, they had signed their names to a letter that they sent to the Apostolic Nuncio, okay. the priests that complained at the start. They were kind of uh, 
under the ringleader of uh, the rector of the cathedral. And um, so he knew who they were, and uh, he was able to, you know, dialogue with them and, um, you know, try to find, uh, as Cardinal Bernadine would say, common ground. Yeah, right. Um, And I think that, you know, uh, over the course of time, the presbyterate in Chicago did come to love Cardinal George. Um, I think they certainly had a great respect for him anyway, by the time he died, even, even controversial folks like father, Michael Flager, uh, who Mm -hmm. the Cardinal had several run-ins with. Yeah. I remember that told me that, uh, you know, he, he, he really respected Cardinal George as much as they disagreed. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a testament to the man's uh, ability to bring people around. He had good relationship with, uh, father Andrew Greeley too, uh, who's outspoken, often considered a, quote, progressive, uh, kind of a hard-scrabble priest. (laughs) They got along well? Yeah, he did. Yeah, they did. They actually went to the opera together (laughs) sometimes. And uh, they were a bit of an odd couple that way because, you know, I don't think that they uh, necessarily agreed too much on theological things, although you might be surprised. But... um, uh Cardinal uh, George was regarded by by Father Greeley as the best archbishop Chicago ever had which was quite something to say because I don't think he liked any of the archbishops of Chicago <laughs> so uh interesting given that they were you know intellectually often opposed to each other right he how did he see uh the problems America was facing. He was not a culture warrior in that narrow ideological sense, but he had great uh, concerns about American culture, some incoherence to it. Uh, how, how did he describe it? Yeah, he was He was once uh, asked by John Paul II, what are you doing to evangelize the culture? And that really shaped the way that uh, his episcopacy unfolded after that because he was really, uh, as you said, concerned about the direction that American culture was taking and how God was no longer seen as an actor in the public square. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of the multifaceted effects of that were rearing their ugly heads right and left. Um, I think, you know, certainly that been vastly accelerated since the time he died eight years ago mm-hmm. uh, but he he could see what was coming he tried as a pastor to prepare his people uh, for what was coming and to equip them for what happens when the future did arrive um, but I, I really think that Cardinal George you know uh, was able to keep his eyes so firmly focused on Christ that he was able to inspire uh, those of us who might be looking at dark days ahead and really still fill us with hope. Yeah. There's the famous passage that's attributed to him that he was expected to die in his bed, but his successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. And then, of course, uh, talks about his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help re- rebuild civilization, as the Church has done so often in history. Uh, 
did he retain that, you know, that uh, attitude uh, to the end of his life? Yes, as far as I know, that uh, he had said that uh, around 2009 or 10 uh, in the uh, throes of the HHS mandate and, and the right. uh, debacle with the Obama administration. And um, it was more or less a thought experiment. I don't think he was trying to be a prophet. <laughs> he was just saying, here, look at history, right? Yeah. We have something to learn from history. This is the common trajectory of things. Um, don't get too comfortable with Christendom. We all know it's it's on its way out, but you know you need to understand that uh, there's going to be hard times ahead. But still, through all of that, have hope. As he said elsewhere once, um, those of us who stand at the empty tomb of Christ are on the right side of history. Yeah, and uh, that's that's really the legacy of the man because he was able to, uh, you know, throughout his whole life endure so much suffering and pain and he knew that that was all transformative and that sanctified and so he had nothing to fear no i don't know how many times i've heard that uh, statement uh, i expect to die in, in bed my successor die in prison uh, my his successor will be a martyr it it was a few years before i actually heard that there was a fourth element to that uh, uh-huh. Oftentimes, the way that story is told, we don't hear the the voice of hope at the end of it. That his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization, as the church has done so often in history. Um, so I think that's it's interesting. That that yeah he he knew he knew that that was often not included in the recording <laughs> of that, and he was very frustrated by that. Because, <laughs> It looked very bleak if he didn't have hope right. at the end, right? Right. He was insistent that we need to have hope. Yeah. Um, how? Let's talk about the abuse uh, crisis. It emerges most clearly in 2002. Uh, some people have been aware of it prior, uh, but 2002 is when it really uh, hits in a big way. Uh had he been prepared for that, or did this come out of the blue? Well, I suppose to some degree he was prepared in that um, Chicago had been wrestling with that sort of thing since Bernadine's time. Mm-hmm. And he had set up a good plan in Chicago under the direction of now uh, Bishop Thomas Paprocki, who was chancellor uh, under the last years of Bernadine. Oh. And... Uh, first years of Cardinal George's time. Hmm. So uh, he inherited a, a good way of handling uh, uh, clerical misconduct. Um, but that being said, you know, uh, the way that it kind of blew up in 2002, I don't think anybody was really ready for. Right. And, um, you know, Cardinal George, I think, is a bit of an unsung hero in the midst of the necessitated reforms, too, because I found a line from him in 2002, even before the Dallas meeting, where he almost prophetically said that uh, the bishops needed to be included in whatever protocols were devised for priests. And uh, we all know that that didn't happen. 
but uh, had it been, you know. <laughs> well, 2000, yeah. The summer of 2018 was just miserable uh, yes. after the, uh, the conviction of uh, McCarrick. And uh, I think, I know among laity anyways, uh, it was people were infuriated that now we were finding out that the bishops had been uh, exempt from the kind of challenge, uh, you know, the oversight, the accountability that priests were expected to submit to. And I understand there are canonical issues here that are difficult to deal with, uh, but still, uh, it's I didn't realize right. that In Cardinal principle. George, uh, Cardinal George knew that that was something that should have been done. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, and uh, even other things, you know, where he would work behind the scenes on things. He was really one of the most vocal proponents of zero tolerance in the halls of the Vatican when when the U.S. bishops were facing some resistance to zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, he was quite adamant that that is what was needed uh, in order for the Church to maintain or try to recover some credibility. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he, 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 as a pastor, he knew what he needed to do for the sake of his people. Did he, if he were asked, is America's biggest problem, um, you know, disparity of uh, income, too big a gap between rich and poor, is America's biggest problem, uh, moral relativism, uh, is America's biggest problem, increased secularization? Did he have a formula for, you know, articulating in a a short way? what the challenge America was facing? Well, I think Cardinal George saw the um, the absence of our religious background in modern conversation, in modern laws, as really the uh, the linchpin of all the difficulties we're facing. Yeah. And uh, he, he wrote a couple books while he was Yes. Archbishop of Chicago. His second one is called God in Action. Yes, I loved it. And, uh, you know, he was, it was a great meditation on how we need to see God's activity in the public square and how we need, as Catholics, to work in, in ensuring that that, uh, you know, happens. But um, I, I don't know that he would have any one particular issue that he would point to other than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, did he have any say in his successor? The only thing I can find on that is uh, his own words from an interview in 2014. Uh, he said that uh, that appointment was handled out of the normal procedures. The congregation of bishops hadn't met on that appointment, and he felt that the Holy Father uh, had kind of been, you know, uniquely involved. And uh, he said. I don't know who was consulted, <laughs> so yeah. I could just take him at his word on that. Yeah, yeah. It seems it, it seems again it seems strange that he wouldn't have been consulted, but I don't know how these things work. Uh, his health was very bad at the end. Yeah, that's he. I don't think was going to retire um, at seventy-eight. He probably would have stayed till he was eighty or so. Yeah, but um, you know he was dead within about a year of the time that he said, uh, we need to start looking for a successor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what was his final illness? He had been battling uh, 
the effects of bladder cancer mm-hmm. uh, for the last nine years of his life. Okay. He had uh, his bladder removed, and then uh, it, it was showing up in his kidneys and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me thank you for giving us uh, a wonderful portrait uh, of this man who I interviewed uh, twice and loved, uh, read his books. Um, so, Michael, thank you. Uh, great pleasure having you with me today. Pleasure. Thank you. Michael Heinlein is the author of Glorifying Christ, the Life of Cardinal Francis George, OMI. I'm Al Preston. <laughs>